All right, let's open our Bibles this morning to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18. We're going to finish the chapter today. Lord willing. I believe he is willing. Father, we just come before you this morning, and Lord, we're very much aware, Lord, that as we read this passage, Lord, that at, at the heart of every one of us, it, it, really, um, it really resonates, Lord, because there, I, I believe in every, in every family and in every fellowship, and, and certainly many in this room, Lord, we, we all struggle with uh, getting things right with one another and doing it rightly, Father, and also learning and growing in forgiveness, Lord. You've forgiven us much, and Lord, you call us because we've been forgiven, Lord, to forgive others. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do that work in our hearts today and just uh, help us to do that, Lord, very simply. And so we and invite you now to just turn the searchlight on in our hearts and uh, make the necessary changes as we read this passage this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jesus, in verse 15, he says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, Tell it to the church, but if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it may be done for them by my Father in heaven." For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. And so, uh, pretty interesting and challenging verses for us this morning. And if you remember, last week we looked at this, and in that verse 15, we really didn't get farther than verse 15, but that word um, sins there is a word that we have used before. It's hamartano, and it literally means to miss the mark. And every one of us have missed the mark. And we looked into that, how every one of us have sinned. We've sinned against someone else. We've certainly sinned against God. And so we've missed the mark. But the Lord is speaking of reconciliation here and how to how to turn a brother, perhaps, who has sinned against you. And, and, and notice in verse 15 that the Lord doesn't go after necessarily, initially, the one who has offended you. He, he encourages you to go to the one who has offended you. And that's kind of backwards, it seems. But he tells us, for us to make the initiative, to go to our brother or sister or someone who has offended us, to go to them. Don't wait for them to come to you. They may never come to you, but you go to them to initiate this reconciliation. And you remember that we looked at this for some time, and King David certainly knew when he, when he refused to follow this, this idea, this command, if you will, David would say, when I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. And for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. David obviously recalling his sin with Bathsheba and against her husband Uriah. But when he kept these things in and he didn't get it right, it was like a cancer that ate at him from the inside. And we looked at that last week too, how it can. It is like a cancer. 
unforgiveness, and, and not only unforgiveness, but just not getting things right. And how long does it take before, when will we get it right? Are we going to our deathbeds? If the Lord tarries and we all die natural deaths, are we going to go to our deathbeds having somebody in our family or a close friend, are we going to go and still harbor that bitterness and never get it right with them? And you know what? Time is short. And time is a commodity that we don't have a great deal of on this side of life. And so it really behooves us to get it right, to get it right. And so Jesus is trying to encourage us, these are the ways you do it. These are the way you do it. You go to them first, get it right. And if you can do that with just one-on-one, it's private, it's simple. And if your brother is repentant, if he acknowledges how he hurt you, And there can be reconciliation, wonderful. And if that doesn't work, you need to bring two or three witnesses to show him his error because it's important for him as well. As for healing for you, but also for him or her, they need to understand the ways in which they hurt. Because sometimes people go throughout their whole lives wrecking people and they don't even know it. And nobody loves them enough to, to set them aside and tell them the truth. And sometimes it's just a character thing and a personality thing and and nobody's told them. So they go throughout life harming people, leaving behind them a, a trail of bodies of people who have been hurt by them. And if we really love, we will speak. If we really love people, we will speak even the hard things. It's important for us to do that because life is short. And something I'm learning, I'm only 53 years old, but it seems like life is just ramping up and and years are going by even quicker and quicker every single year. And I don't have the luxury of time anymore. And I'm not going to mince words anymore. I want to get it right as much as possible. I want to get it right. I don't want to live a life of regrets. I don't want to get on my deathbed and, 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 and look at the carnage of the life that I have lived behind me. In the living years, make it happen. Make it happen while you still got breath in your lungs. Because you have been forgiven much. And we looked at just the, the human heart and, and the tongue and how often, usually within grievances or sin in the church, often is just this little member behind our teeth, this gate that our, that our tongue has is right here in front of us. It's our teeth. It keeps this ugly thing from expressing itself. Anybody, does that resonate with anybody? Is your tongue ugly like mine? It can be. It can be a poison. It can be... It can be a great encouragement. I can, I can encourage somebody. I can tell them wonderful things out of this mouth. And out of the same mouth, I can hurt somebody so deeply with just a word, just a word. Think of how deadly and how easy it is. See, most of us don't own weapons, and so you, 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 know, you can hurt somebody physically, but if you don't own a weapon, you can't do that. But you know what? With a tongue, you can hurt somebody sometimes even more so with a word that you say and how you say it. So deeply that they'll never forgive you. Some people, some marriages are teetering and on the fence right now even because of something you said to me back three years ago and I'll never forget it. I'll never forgive you either. Right? And people get ugly like that. And yet they ought to just come together and say, you know what, I, 
I was angry and I am so sorry. Will you forgive me? And sometimes it's just that simple. Relationships can be restored, but the tongue is full of gossip. The tongue is so deadly, and we looked at that too. How David even said, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth, and keep watch over the door of my lips. Keep this thing from expressing itself. And uh, it's so important for us to do that. And, um, and so notice in verse 15, he says, Moreover, if, underline or circle that word if, because it's a condition. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, if he does, if, you know, if your brother sins against you, then, you, you could insert the word then if you wanted to there, but this is what you do. You go and you tell him, you go and tell him his fault between you and him. Notice, alone. Do it alone. Don't skip steps. Don't get the whole church involved. Go to them first, quietly, privately. Buy him ice cream. That always helps. While you're licking your cone, say, you know what? You really hurt me really bad. <laughs> oh? If your brother sins then against you, then go tell him his fault. And if, there's the condition again, if he hears you, then what have you gained? You have gained your brother. And in the Bible, there are many conditional and unconditional statements. And this is a condition. It's a conditional statement. It's those things that may or will occur if you do a certain action. And let me just give you a really fun example. If you get between Mama Grizzly and her cubs, you're going to die. <laughs> if you don't get between Mama Grizzly and her cubs, you're going to live. So what's it going to be? You don't want to get between mama and her cubs. In conditional statements, they're identified by sentences that begin with if. And then there's another sentence, usually within the same uh, area where it says then, if, then. If this happens, then this will happen or possibly could happen. And in the Old Testament, there's a, a really wonderful uh, conditional statement and it's found in Jeremiah and God is speaking to the prophet, to the children of Israel. He says, for if, if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, and if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and do not, take, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, or walk after other gods to your hurt, then, then, I will cause you to dwell in this land, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. A conditional statement, right? If you do these things, then I will do this. I will see to it that these things happen. It's a conditional statement. And a timely example in the New Testament is when we looked at this yesterday at the baptism picnic, when Philip, uh, the Lord encouraged Philip to go up next to this uh, Ethiopian eunuch as he was returning to Ethiopia in the south of Jerusalem, and, and remember, uh, Philip came up into the chariot, and the man was reading uh, from Isaiah 53. And Philip began to preach Christ to the man out of Isaiah 53. The man gets saved that moment, and notice what it says. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? And then Philip said, If you believe, there's the condition. Notice the condition. If you believe with all of your heart, you may. 
And what was his response, the eunuch? He answered and said, I believe that Christ, that Jesus Christ, is the Son of God. A condition. And he was baptized by Philip. And in the Bible, there's also unconditional statements. And I love these even better because it requires nothing of me. An unconditional statement is one that God does, and it has nothing to do with our performance at all. And, and, and these are things that God is going to do, period. He's going to do them regardless. And uh, in Genesis chapter 15, the Abrahamic covenant was one such covenant, is, is one such statement. God said to Abraham, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not be afraid, Abram, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. But Abram said, Lord... What will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body, he will be your heir. And then he took him outside and said, Look now toward heaven, Abram. And count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And so God not only gave to Abram this promise of a son from his own loins in his old age and in Sarai's old age, but then in the last part of chapter 15, he gives them the land covenant too. And he said, on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your descendants, I have given you this land from the river, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. And he lists all these Canaanite towns and nations. He says, all these I have given to you. And did it require Abram to do anything? God says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a son and you're going to multiply it like the stars of heaven. And I'm going to give you this land. And Abram, it has nothing to do with your performance. Granted, there were things that they had to do and they even failed in that, but it didn't keep God from fulfilling his end of the bargain. It was unconditional. He did it with no conditions. I, this is what I'm going to do. And even the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9. Remember, after he gets radically saved on the road to Damascus, he goes into Ananias' house and God speaks to Ananias and he says to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. There's nothing that Paul, this is what God was going to do in Paul's life. God was going to do it. Unconditional promise. This is what I'm going to do in your life, Paul. And I love unconditional promises because I can't mess those up. Now, salvation is what we've been given by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. It's a work that God does and not given to us based on our performance at all. God initiates the salvation by his grace. Why? Because he loves us. We did not even know that we were lost and hell-bound, and yet he initiated that from the very beginning. So before we even knew we were sinners, God died for us. Jesus died for us. He initiated it. It was like the beginning of this whole thing was unconditional. Meaning that there was nothing we did for God to initiate that. Now, there is something that we need to do. We know that we need to receive Christ. We need to believe in his shed blood on the cross. And then we will be saved. But the salvation was given to us. 
without any merit of our own. And all we had to do is just now simply believe. And so God was proactive in it. And I love in Revelation it says that uh, Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And while we were yet sinners, what does the Bible tell us? That God demonstrates his own love toward us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And notice in verse 15, if he hears you, if your offending brother or sister hears you, you have gained your brother. And this word here is important. I would encourage you to get a concordance and look up certain words, verbs, because they have meanings that go beyond our English. And sometimes they're a little more fat than our normal thinking of our English terms. And looking into the original language of what a word might mean will we'll give a whole new uh, nuance to it and it'll impact your heart even more. The idea here is to attend to it, to consider it, to perceive and understand what is being said. If you go to your brother and you tell them, look, this is what has happened, if they understand it, if they perceive it, if they attend to it, then you have gained your brother. And here's the sad thing is that we can't make anyone understand. We can't make them get it. But if they do, then praise the Lord, you've gained them. You've gained them back. And this is the way we should begin issues, dealing with issues within the church. Here is the blueprint right here in Matthew in verses 15 through 20. This is how we get it done. Don't blast them on social media. Don't go on Facebook or Twitter and, and speak of something that's supposed to be private and you blast your friend or your relative out of the water. It happens all the time. It's unfortunate. Why can't people... There, there was a time, and let me just go off here for a second. There was a time when we could have a thought and, and an issue in our own heart and we kept it to ourselves because we didn't have the internet. Hallelujah. The older I get the more I'm realizing, you know what, I could care less about the internet. It's done more harm than, than good, probably. But why do we feel the need to express every little thing? I ate breakfast this morning. And you took a picture of your grapefruit. I mean, is that really, not, I mean, is there anything private anymore? You know, I had indigestion this morning. I ate pizza last night. Do we know, need to know that? But don't blast them on social media. Don't call your best friend and get their support. Don't run to your pastor trying to get him against that person. Don't run, but do run to God. Run to God first, and then go to the person who has wronged you. Again, get it right. Time is short. Verse 16, but if he will not hear, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And again, notice the conditional statement. If he doesn't hear, then bring two or three more. Well, where does this idea come from? Well, it comes from the Bible. All great things come from the Bible. Our whole law code and everything, right, Pastor David? The, the, our, our, the, the codes, the, our laws are based on the law of Moses. These things are written there. And they're based on our Judeo-Christian heritage. You can't run from it. You can't cancel it. You can't scrub it out of our textbooks. It's there. 
It's foolish to do anything else. But what does it say in Deuteronomy? One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. But by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. And even when it comes to capital crime, whoever kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the testimony of witnesses. But one witness is not sufficient testimony against a person for the death penalty. So this is why we have judges and grand juries and witnesses are brought forward to attest to or deny allegations against a defendant in a case. It's because of this. When you got two or three people saying, I saw it with my own eyes, and separately they write affidavits and statements, and their statements align up perfectly, that's a solid testimony. I saw it with my own eyes, and here's what happened, and all three of them agree, and they've never met each other. You're toast <laughs> at that point, but not, on the, on the, not with one witness. Jesus in the New Testament, when there was a dispute between him and the Pharisees, he invoked this same scripture and principle. It tells us in John chapter 8, and let me just read it to you. It says that Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And the Pharisees therefore said to him, you bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. And Jesus answered and said to them, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I came from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. Is it also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true? I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Jesus himself. Bearing witness, because the Spirit and the Father bear witness as well. And what, is, what does this principle, this concept do too? It provides accountability, doesn't it? By bringing the offending brother between two or three people, now it's not just one person's word against another person. Now you've got a couple people listening to the whole thing. Accountability is good. To, to listen to the words and the actions and most of the time, when it gets to this level, either the offending party won't show up or they'll just leave the church. It very rarely gets to this point, unfortunately, because of the pride of man. As soon as they're, they're, they're standing before somebody or seated with two other people and they're trying to work this thing out, a lot of times, once they know that that's actually the, the case, they'll just take off because we're immature. Because we're filled with pride. The Bible says pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. We usually don't know how proudful or how pride, how proud we are until circumstances arise and then we realize, oh my goodness, I'm really filled with pride. And God hates pride. He hates it. Verse 17, and if he refuses to hear them, then tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Notice again the conditional statement. If, if he refuses to hear them, then tell it to the ecclesia. Yes, this is a word 
called uh, the church. In, in Greek, it's ekklesia. It literally means called out ones. It's only used three times in the Gospels, and all three of them are here in Matthew's Gospel. The first time was in Matthew 16, verse 18, when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Remember, Peter said, I, uh, we believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He goes, you know, praise the Lord, Peter. Flesh and blood has not you know, shown this to you. He goes, upon this rock, I will build my church, my ecclesia. And Jesus here uses this very word. And of course, it's in dozens of places throughout the rest of the New Testament. But it is a community, a, a, a popular meeting. And, and it could be, uh, Jesus could be speaking here of, uh, of the Jewish synagogue. Or also looking forward to when he would depart and ascend into heaven and then the church would be born on the day of Pentecost. Certainly that is true. Looking forward to when the church was born, the ecclesia, the called out ones. Either way, they were brought before the fellowship. You know, there are some churches... And I, I, wouldn't, I don't know if I'd want to go to a church like this, but <laughs> there's been some churches where they'll actually have somebody stand, you know. And, and unfortunately, they haven't done the other two things. They've only done, you know, they haven't gone to the person one-on-one. -on -one. They haven't taken two or more and tried to convince them. They just have the person stand and, and blast them right in front of the congregation. I've seen that happen before. It's horrible. We shouldn't do that. Go one-on-one. -on -one. Jesus in verse 18 says, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So this word you here is a plural pronoun, which means logically that Jesus was addressing the disciples. He wasn't speaking to Peter specifically, as some purport. He was speaking to all of them. And this idea of binding and loosing was them coming into agreement with what God had already spoken through the word of God. And, and as they were led by the spirit of God, there would naturally be unity and agreement among the group about certain things that are happening and have happened. In Jesus, in verse 19, he says, Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And uh, Jesus said a very similar thing. Later on in his ministry, he said this, and whatever you ask, speaking to his disciples, whatever you ask, notice, in my name. I had to make sure that that was highlighted. Because whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. This assumes a unity of spirit, doesn't it? Asking in the name of Jesus is a sacred thing. Think of the, the measure of uh, assurance when two or more mature believers agree that Jesus will answer the prayer. Notice I said mature believers. Because if two immature believers get together and they buy lottery tickets for the Mega Millions jackpot, and they pray and expect God to come through, 
He's not obligated to come through. But if you remember, remember Calvary Chapel and tithe. I'm only kidding. Only kidding. Sort of. But where two or three are gathered together in my name. In my name is such a wonderful phrase. Because that means that whatever I do, whatever I pray for, if I'm doing it in Jesus' name, it's not going to be something superfluous. It's not going to be something silly. It's not going to be something wasteful. It's going to be something serious. It's going to be something that is in accord with God's word. You know, if I pray, Lord, you know, like I remember Janice Joplin back in the 60s, you know, Lord, buy me a Mercedes Benz. Well, she got her Mercedes, I think. But God's not obligated to give her a Mercedes Benz. Because then it just becomes, look what I've got, my idol. The thing that I've always wanted, here it is. Don't touch it. For heaven's sake, don't breathe on it. Steaming up the chrome. God's not obligated. But if you ask in his name, you're going to be asking for things about people's lives. You're going to be asking about things that impact the kingdom of God forever, not just some temporal fleshly thing. Now, God may give you those things. I mean, the, you know, he knows the heart. I'm so glad that, I, that I, when I've asked Jesus about certain things, that he hasn't given me what I've requested because it would destroy me. And he knows what's going to destroy me. And he's, ob- and he's not obligated to give me something that he knows is going to cause me to compromise or for my heart to go south. He's not obligated to do that. But when I pray in Jesus' name, that's a whole different matter. Lord, I pray that you give me a heart that's forgiving. Ah, now you're onto something. Lord, I pray that you would touch my mother's heart, Lord, that she would open it, and, and, and Lord, that the, the truth of your word would just take over every part of her being. That's, a, that's a, something he will agree with and, and begin to do. But if I say, Lord, I really want that Harley Davidson, that brand new one with the, everything is just so beautiful. He's not obligated. And God help me if he gives it. Right? For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst. And so inherent in this verse is really Jesus prophesying of the time when he was no longer with his disciples. He wasn't with them physically, and he's speaking of the future church. If you read it, you understand that. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am in the midst of them. He's already, he's already looking forward to his departure, and it's not very long from this moment. And this, see, this is how the church ought to operate in manners of discipline and prayer. Now, verses 21 through the balance of the chapter is a chapter about forgiveness. Notice it says, Then Peter came to him, to Jesus, and said, Lord, how often, now that I'm forgiving my brother and I'm going and talking to him, how, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Wow, Peter. Now, evidently, there was an old Jewish rabbinic teaching that spoke that three times was enough to forgive somebody. And it's based on one of these verses up here in, in Amos uh, 1.3, and, or 1, uh, 1.3, <laughs> Amos 1 verse 3, or Amos 2 verse 6, which says something like this, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. So in other words, three strikes and you're out. And so Peter's thinking to himself, 
Well, that was what the rabbi said, and I'm going above and beyond. Seven. And not only that, but it's the number of completion and perfection. And God is going, Peter, you are so wonderful. Rising above the crust. Oh, my goodness. Oh, I need to give you the keys of the kingdom. And And Jesus looks at him, and what does he say to him? I do not say unto you seven times, but uh, up to 70 times seven. In other words, just keep forgiving, Peter. It's not like, this doesn't mean that you have one of those little clicker things in your pocket, a little clicker counter, and every time that person sins against you, you click it. They can hear it in your pocket. And once it gets to 250, you've crossed the 499 or whatever, the 490. Once it gets to four, you know, 449, once it gets to 450... Got to put you in the tank with the megalodons. You're done. 450 times. Sorry. But Jesus didn't say that. So let me ask you, are you still harboring a grudge of unforgiveness? Every one of us probably are to some extent. Hopefully none of us, but we live in a world where offenses come. We live in the real world, and the real world is an ugly place. In the real world, people hide. In the real world, people can be ugly. But what does the model prayer tell us in Matthew chapter 6? Does it not say in that model prayer, and forgive us our debts, or literally forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, or forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors? The, the word is, can be interchangeable. And then there's another tough verse that really hurts, and I'm going to share it with you because I want to share the pain. No, I don't really want to share the pain, but this is, this is a tough verse. Jesus said, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, then your heavenly Father, then neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. This is one of those verses that is very difficult, but the Lord is showing us how important it is to forgive. Is it right to get it in the light and to forgive? Of course it is. Again, life is short. Stop being stubborn. Stop being stubborn and go get it right while you still are both alive. You'll be glad you did and you may even get the opportunity, the privilege to lead them to Christ. If your heart is right when you go share those things, when you try to get it right and you forgive someone or have them forgive you, if you can do that, what an amazing thing. It often leads to one thing to another. Because here's the deal, folks. No one on their deathbed is concerned about money. They're rather concerned about their family and their immediate relationships. They're more concerned about that than wondering about whether my money is invested. They're thinking about people now. Isn't that true? So be a catalyst. Be a catalyst in restoring and renewing those relationships and do it now. Like what it says in Romans, Paul says, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And this is what we are to do. 
And one of the great benefits of forgiving someone is that not only will they feel better, but you will feel better as well. Instead of it eating you like a cancer and destroying you from the inside out, then give it to the Lord and let him deal with it. And let him deal with your heart first, because forgiving someone, even if the offending party could care less about your piety and your desire to get things right, it will keep you from stewing. It'll keep you from resorting to drugs and alcohol and many other vices that are used to kill the unforgiveness and the hate that you feel inside. Do you know that's why a lot of people drink alcohol? To do it to get drunk because they, there's unforgiveness, there is angst, and there's hatred against somebody else. They don't like themselves, maybe. Maybe they're mad at somebody else. It's never going to be resolved. I can't deal with the pain. How do I deal with the pain? Well, you find it at the bottom of a Jack Daniel. You find it at the end of a, of a, of a joint. You find it in, the, in relationships, whatever it may be, and it destroys your life. And, and then what good has it done to you, really? It's done nothing for you. I mean, seriously, we're we're adults here. And every one of us have experienced these things. And let me ask you the question, what is the fruit of those things? There is no fruit. There's a whole list, a whole litany of things behind you that you feel ashamed of, that you wish you could go back. Well, you know what? You've got time to go get it right. Get it right. Jesus says in verse 23, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. So this is a parable, and and these things Jesus shows us, as we've looked at uh, chapter 13 not too long ago, these things are to show us the behaviors that we ought to foster in our own lives as children of the kingdom And also attitudes and behaviors that we should stay away from. And so he continues in this parable and he goes, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, in our vernacular today, 10,000 talents would be millions of dollars. And if it was talents of gold or silver, it would be even greater than that. We're talking loads of millions of dollars, a huge amount of money. So when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, an immeasurable amount of money. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. And this was something that was given in the... The law, if you could not pay your debt, this was a common practice. You would work for the lender until you paid off that debt. And yes, you and your wife and your kids. And all your other possessions would be sold too. There was provision in the law for that. And then the servant fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, hallelujah, and released him and forgave him the debt. Wow. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which is a largely insignificant amount compared to the 10,000 talents. This is like a day's wage, maybe three months worth of wages. It's very insignificant compared to 10,000 talents. A very easy debt to pay off. 
So his fellow servant fell down at his feet, begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I'll pay you all. And he would not, but he went and he threw him in prison, that he should pay the debt. And not only that, but he put his hands around his throat and says, Pay me what you owe me. I can't do it. So the fellow servant fell down at his feet, begged him, have patience with me and I'll pay you all. And he would not. Notice he would not. It's not that he couldn't, but he chose not to. What a, the will is a weird thing, isn't it? There's things that you can do and there's things that you will not do. <laughs> he would not. But bent, but went, excuse me, and threw him into prison till he, sh- till he should pay the debt. And what a nasty, incompassionate, well, I don't know if that's the right word, I'm making it up now. Person lacking compassion, what a horrible example. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved, and they came and told their master all that had been done. And then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And the answer is, of course. Yes. Do you remember Jesus said, To whom much is given, much is required. In the case of the unforgiving servant in this passage, how could someone who had been forgiven multiple millions be so harsh to someone who owed him so little? Think of how every human being who is, who is destined for heaven, yes, even you and I, we, have, we are destined for heaven. We're, we're heaven bound because of our faith in Christ. And think of just us, the church, how many sins that we have committed that Jesus has forgiven us of already. I mean, I'd hate to see the clicker in his pocket. I'd probably be very shocked at how many thousands, and hopefully it would only be thousands of times I sinned against God, probably in the hundreds of thousands, maybe even the millions. But if this be the case, then how often are we to forgive our fellow man? Turn with me, if you would, to Luke's Gospel, chapter 7. We're going to look at a passage here really quick before we take communion. Luke 7, verses 36 through 50. And I love this passage because it's all predicated on the love of someone. Luke chapter 7. Notice what it says. Verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house, and he sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. This was a very expensive uh, thing that she had. And she stood at his feet behind him, weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and she anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he spoke to himself. Notice, he spoke to himself. Now whether this was audible or not, I have no idea. But it makes no difference because the Lord knows the thoughts and the intents of the heart. He knew exactly what the Pharisee was thinking. He didn't even need to open his mouth. And maybe he didn't. Maybe he spoke to himself, as it says here. 
And he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Can you imagine this? Probably scared him to death. Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. He said, There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. And then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, I love this when Jesus does this. He turns to the woman and he's speaking, but he's speaking to Simon. This is so powerful. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, which is a very traditional, hospitable thing to do in the Middle East or in the Near East as it is. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, well, who is this who even forgives sins? And then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And see, I think about that. You know, as we, as we consider, and the worship team, why don't you guys go ahead and come on up, and uh, we'll, we're going to get ready to take communion here. But think about this. Think of how much God has forgiven you. And the more that he's forgiven you, the very logical, the very natural thing for us to do is to love him even more. And how many of you have sinned a lot? I mean, all of us could raise our hands. So let's love Jesus even more today and tomorrow and next week than we did before we walked into this building this morning. And let's learn and let's grow to be willing to forgive. It is so important that we forgive. I believe you'll live longer too. Do you know how many people are, are racked with unforgiveness? It does affect your health. In fact, some people are still pushing pills and still drinking to deal with those issues of the heart. And yet you can go to Christ and be forgiven. And he's forgiven us a lot more. And that's what communion is all about. When we think about what Jesus did on the cross for us, in fact, it was because of his death and his resurrection, his ascension, it's because he sent the Spirit of God to indwell us that we are called Christ ones. We are called Christians. Now we have this ability because we have been forgiven much. Of all my sins, if they could be laid up here somehow in some graphic manner, you know, uh, I don't know that the room would be able to contain them. And Christ says, Rob, I forgive you of all of it. Because you have put your faith and your trust in me. 
And isn't it true that when you are forgiven, when you, when you are given eternal life, it, the, the natural response is, Lord, forgive me for everything. Notice he didn't wait for us to forgive him and then say, okay, now I'll save you. No, he saved you. And then what happens as a result of that? We, we recognize that forgiveness and now we reciprocate that to a world around us that is so different than that. The world is an ugly place, folks, and yet God has given us, think of this, he's given us to this world for them to look at, for them to examine, for them to to examine our lives, and will we rise to the occasion in these last days, in these days where things are more polarized than ever before in the history of our country, Perhaps even in the history of the world, there's more polarization right now than ever before in human history. And what are we, church, what are we going to do? Are we going to get on the bandwagon and be hateful and unforgiving and spiteful? Or are we just going to say, you know what, Lord, this is too much for me. I don't like what's happening. I can't fix it. Only you can fix it. Only you're able. You're the only one able to fix it. I I can't do it. But Lord, I I give you my life and help my life to be a a, a model. Help me to be an ambassador to everyone around me. When everyone is ugly and canceling and screaming and fighting and name-calling, help me to be just the exact opposite. Help me to be loving and forgiving. And that is a tall order, folks. And I'll be honest with you, in the last four years, last three years, I've been struggling with that more than anything. Well, the things that I see going on, it is so hard. Does any, can anybody relate to that? I, I don't know if you do, but the more I know, the more I see, the more I'm struggling. I'm like, the, Lord, the Lord's going, Rob, you need to stop looking at that stuff. You're just killing yourself. I told you these things were going to happen. He did. He told us. Didn't we go through the book of Revelation? Didn't it tell us these things are coming? The one world order? It's coming. It's actually here. I don't know if the Lord's going to give us a reprieve. I don't, it doesn't tell me that in the Bible at all. There's a one-world religion. There's a cashless society that's you can't, you, you can't even pay cash in some places. And all they do, they're going to flip a switch any moment. And everything is, money is going to be done away with. It's going to be something else. One-world economy. Coming soon to a theater near you. And all of these, those three things specifically were told us in advance. To a man named John on the Isle of Patmos at around 96, 97, 100 BC, 100 uh, AD, somewhere in that area, God spoke to him. And we've been reading it. And lo and behold, it's coming true to form exactly as Christ has said. So we don't need to worry, but we do need to ask him, Lord, give me a heart that I, that I don't fulfill that promise in Matthew 24 where it says, the, the, because iniquity shall abound, the love, the agape of many will grow cold. Folks, do you see yourself in that place? I see myself and I'm like, Lord, I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be the one who hates. I don't want to be the one who is just bent on hating I want to be the one who's loving. I want to be the one who puts that stuff aside. It's important. Don't get me wrong. Okay, I'm a patriot. (laughs) You know me enough. I'm a patriot of this country. But what is more important? The saving of a soul 
or the saving of a country. I think both are important, and we should do both simultaneously. However, if I have to choose between one of the two, we need to choose the salvation of the soul. Amen? So, Father, we... um, Lord, this passage hits me right between the eyes. And I know it does my brothers and sisters as well. Lord, would you work this, your spirit, into us and help us to be willing to surrender all of it to you. Help us to be willing to surrender the unforgiveness, the hatred, whatever it is, even with family members. Or, Lord, if there's someone who has sinned against us, Lord, help us to get it right while we are in the living years. Lord, not to allow it to fester like a cancer, Lord, but to rather be part of restoration. Lord, would you help us do that, Lord? Would you start with me, Lord? Start with me. And do that work in all of us, Lord. And as we take the bread and the cup this morning, may it remind us of the blood that was shed, the body that was broken. Lord, the forgiveness that you gave to us through your blood, And Lord, thank you for even giving us the faith to believe it. And Lord, may we remember you at this time, all that you did on the cross for us. And may it change us forever. May we leave here completely different. Holy Spirit, change us forever. In Jesus' name, amen. As the worship team leads us, feel free at your leisure to come up and grab the elements, bring them back to your chair, and we'll take them together, okay? His wounds have paid our ransom. By his stripes we are healed. By the single blow of God the Father upon that cross, it wasn't just the, the lictors who had their way with him with the flagellum. It, it wasn't that so much as it was the very sin of us all being placed upon Christ at one moment in time. And the Bible says that God the Father cannot look upon sin, and for a moment he turned his face away from his son as he bore the punishment for your sin and for my sin. And that's why we, we take communion, to remember what he did for us. And how could we forget, honestly? But in a world that is so busy, it's, it's so good for us to come back to the very basics, the very foundation of it all. And Peter, or excuse me, Paul, in Corinthians, he says in chapter 11, verse 23, For I have received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, and he broke it, and he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. And do this in remembrance of me. So let's take the bread and let's partake. And Jesus' body was indeed broken. His skin, not a bone was broken, however, fulfilling the prophecies. But then afterward, in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper. 
saying this cup is the new covenant, a new covenant even before he died. Do you realize he was in the upper room when he said this, and it would be just hours from then that he would actually perform the doing, the deed of bearing the sin of man. And Jesus already had his eyes and his heart. It was already done in his mind. It was already finished. He just had to walk through it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do. And as often as you drink, do it in remembrance of me. And then Paul adds, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Let's take the cup. You know, what we just did here was really an amazing thing. It's so easy to, to you know, when we take communion, to kind of go through the motions, and, and it's something we do three times a, a month, here in the church, corporately anyway, and it's so easy just to kind of get into a, 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 you know, this is just something that we do, but do you understand that having uh, to do what we just did there by ingesting the very, what we're basically saying is, Lord, we believe what you did on the cross is true. And that's why only believers should take communion. I think if you're not a believer, it would be good for you not to because you don't believe it. Bob, but once you do believe it and you take those elements, when you drink or uh, eat anything, where does it go but in the very center of you? And there's something to that as well. Be the center, Lord. The truths that this represents, may it be the center of our being and everything we say we do, and may it just completely, Lord, work from the inside out. And that's what the Lord does, doesn't he? He works from us on, from the inside out. And let him do it, and, and especially for those of you who have been walking with the Lord for some time. Don't ever stop. Don't ever think you've gotten a plateau and I can just coast. No, you keep climbing. You keep going. You keep going. Keep encouraging. Keep growing. We cannot stop to grow. Let's stand together and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity. And uh, we pray that in this last song as we sing, Lord, that you would just encourage our hearts. Lord, you, to you belong the glory and the praise and the honor. Jesus, we love you and we invite you to just take control of our hearts again and remove anything that's just in the way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Christ is risen from the grave. Amen. 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 God bless you. Lord, we just thank you again for your, this time together. Lord, bless us as we go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you.